Good morning, everybody. Welcome again. Um, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn in the uh, book of Hebrews. Um, and uh, we are in uh, chapter 10 of Hebrews. This may be one of the hardest chapters in the uh, New Testament. Um, Hebrews 10 is a chapter I believe is used a lot uh, to discourage sometimes. It's used a lot, I think, by what the Bible says is our enemy. Satan himself uses this passage, I think, to beat people up when it's supposed to be an encouragement to us who are walking with him. It's supposed to be an encouragement to remind us of what Jesus has done and our response. Um, to walk you back through our series, we've been in Hebrews. Um, the title of our series is Consider Jesus. The writer of Hebrews, again, this may be your first Sunday here, the writer of Hebrews is writing to Hebrews. He's writing to Jewish people. He's, he's writing to people that were, had decided to follow Christ and make Jesus their Messiah, that's what Christ means, is Messiah. They said, yes, we do believe you are Yahweh who saves. That's what Jesus means. That's what his name means. And they said, we're going to commit ourselves. And then what happened is, as things got hard, as persecution started happening, as their family members started persecuting them, kicking them out, not allowing them to be around, like considering them heretics, and they were threatened with their life, they began to go back to doing Jewish things that they didn't need to do anymore because of what Christ had done. And they started to go back on their faith, and the writer of Hebrews is trying to say, look, are you truly a believer? Did, did you truly believe in Christ? Because if you did, there's no turning back. He either is the Messiah or he's not. <laughs> there's not like a middle ground where you can kind of play the, maybe he's the Messiah game. Like, like you're either in or you're out. And the writer of Hebrews is trying also at the same time to encourage Hebrew people, you ready for this, who are looking around and wondering, should I go back to that? Because it seems like that other person who still quietly believes in Jesus or says that Jesus is the Messiah, but they've gone back to do all the other stuff, they seem to be having a lot better life than me. They're not getting persecuted. They're not getting beat up. So if I just kind of go along with things, if I don't make a big ruckus in my culture about who Jesus is, if I don't like challenge what people are doing in the Old Testament that Jesus said no longer needs to be done, then maybe I can have the life my friends have, the people around me have. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, you have got to consider Jesus in every single area of your life because he is either Lord and Messiah and in control of your life or he's not. The great part is, like Ben's testimony, man, thankfully God is patient with us, right? That he is patient and long-suffering with us, which is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. The first week we talked to the writer said, look, your attention to Jesus, considering Jesus, is starting to drift. And we looked at the passage that talks about that. Then we looked at how the writer said, because your attention is drifting, I'm appealing to you. Trust him. Truly trust him. And if, you, if you've kind of walked away, trust him again. And then he says, and remember that if you don't do that, your heart is going to begin to get hard and you are not going to find rest in this world. And God wants to give you his rest in the midst of a world that is constantly restless, always chasing the next thing. 
And then the writer goes on to say, if you don't harden your heart, if you trust him, you can trust the Lord to take you on to maturity. Like Ben talked about, that he'll take you as you are, as a child, as a baby, as an infant, and he will begin to raise you up within the body and with with his help through the power of the Holy Spirit to help you be mature. And then he said, as that process happens, you're going to have to remember to seize hope because maturity is (laughs) hard, right? We've got a word for it today called adulting. Like we came came up for a word for how hard maturity is. Like I'm adulting today. Well, that's the goal, right? It's to grow into maturity. And he says, you've got to seize the hope you have in Jesus because if you actually try to mature in Christ, the world doesn't like that. They They want to mature you like you want to be matured, like they want to mature you. And they says, to gain that hope, you're going to have to continually draw near because when you become hopeless, your tendency is going to be to what? Draw away. To not consider that Jesus came from heaven to earth, which we'll read today, for us, but to say, Jesus, if, if you're not going to do what I want you to do, then I'm done with you. And then he goes on and he says, and you've got to remember that the reason you're drawing near is not to get something in this life, The reason you're drawing near is because there's a forever and always life coming and there's something better beyond this life. Last week, we looked at the fact that the author then doubles down and he says, considering all this I just laid out, I'm asking you the question, do you really believe he's the Messiah and Savior of the world? Do you believe that everything in human history and everything that the world is about points to him? That's what we looked at. And this week, let us, let us, let me pray for us. Father, thank you this morning. Lord, I pray that you would let us hear from you. Lord, I pray that you would allow us the opportunity this morning to open our hearts, to consider Jesus more than we did when we walked into this place. I pray that the Holy Spirit right now would be working on my heart the hearts of those in this room, and would you go before us as we dive into your word and see what is true about you, not what we want to be true about you. And may we allow you to penetrate our heart in such a way that it changes us, like we heard Ben talk about how you're changing him. And so, Father, we are grateful this morning, and we praise you. Amen. In Hebrews 10.22, it says, let us draw near, hold on, and be concerned. Those three things we're going to look at. Last week, as we ended the series, to, or ended the, the uh, sermon on the Messiah, the writer in chapter 10, verse 15 says this, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. The Holy Spirit's the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is what was sent when Jesus went up to heaven. The third person of the Trinity came down to earth. And the third person of the Trinity indwells us when we become Christians. Just like in the temple of the Old Testament, it indwelled the Holy of Holies. It indwelled the temple of the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit did. They saw it come down. Same thing for believers. The temple has moved. It's no longer a physical building. The temple is the human heart, which God prophesied he would do. That's where the writer goes on to say. For after he says, God says, this is the covenant I will make. It's not a covenant you make. He says, I will make a covenant. This is going to be a covenant that I guarantee. This is a covenant that's not like you do your part, I do my. This is a covenant that I guarantee. And he says, will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. 
You see, when we talk about the law of God, we typically talk about it, about what we do. God wants us to consider his law of why we do what we do. The heart behind why we do what we do. So it's not just, well, I don't want to commit adultery because then my wife will get mad and then that'll be bad and I don't want that to happen and I want to come home and have food on the table so I'll just treat her nice. That is not considering the law of God in your heart. That's considering your law because you don't want life to go bad for you. Versus what Ben talked about, which was saying, regardless of what, what my wife does to me, I'm going to give my life to her because that's what Christ did for sinners. That's radical in our culture, guys. Radical. We are always demanding the other side of the covenant from people, right? Instead of giving and surrendering our lives. It doesn't mean that we don't hold people accountable. The author of Hebrews is getting ready to go into some real accountability language here. But it does mean that we understand that God does this work, we don't do it. And then once he starts to do it, we just respond to him doing it. He goes on and he says, he adds, I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. How many of your sins were in the future when Jesus died 2,000 years ago? It's not a trick question. How many? How many? All of them. And he died for you. So you may accept Christ today and sin tomorrow, but guess what? He already died for that sin tomorrow, just like he died 2,000 years ago. I know that blows our mind away. That's our God. And there's no other God or religion on the face of the planet like this that wants a relationship that created beings to respond to him. Not a one. So he either is the Messiah who he says he is and we need to let us together worship him and move towards him or this is the last religion you need to consider. This is the last belief system you need to put on your plate. You need to try every other one. He goes on and he says, now where there is forgiveness of these, there no longer remains an offering for sin. In other words, what are you gonna give God? What are you gonna do to prove to God that you're sorry enough? You got to cut yourself. You got to starve yourself. What have you got to do to prove to God that, that you're worthy of him? See, that's what the religions of the world teach. The religions of the world teach there's a, there's a measure of you've got to prove your worthiness to our God. Oh, and by the way, we're the guys at the top, and so we're more worthy than you are, so you need to listen to us and do what we tell you to do. See how that works? Christianity puts everybody equal, like our church's name, at the foot of the cross. We are all in the same boat, desperate for a savior. And if we accept him, he says, I will make a covenant with you and I will forgive you. And that is beautiful. And in this passage in Hebrews 10, he's quoting Deuteronomy eleven eighteen, 18, Ezekiel 36, 26, and Jeremiah 31, 33. The writer of Hebrews is reminding these Hebrews, he's using the scriptures to remind them of the scriptures, to remind them of who Jesus is. But that's what the author is doing. And he asks us to surrender ourselves to him. Then he goes on and he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. Remember, they didn't boldly enter the sanctuary in the Old Testament. They were scared to death to go in because the Holy Spirit was there and they were afraid they'd be struck dead because it happened before. People would be struck dead in the temple. They were scared. And he said, no, no, no. Now, because of what Jesus did, that he tore the veil, 
He has opened for us a new and living way, not a dead way where we offer dead animals as sacrifices. He's opened a new living way, which is the curtain that is his own body. He offered himself in our place. Since we have this great high priest over the house of God for us, what's our response? The writer of Hebrews has been writing for nine and a half chapters to try to convince these people that Jesus really is who he says he is, trying to convince them that the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament is about Jesus, that all of life is about Jesus. And he comes to this point. He comes to this point. And he says, now, let us. That's the next part. He says, let us. And can I just tell you, modern philosophy is always telling us bad premises. A bad premise. When you begin with the premise that I'm okay, you're okay. I'm a good person. When you begin with that premise and you take that down the line, it goes to some crazy places. If we don't believe what the Bible says that each of us has gone astray, each of us is a sinner at the core of our being and in desperate need of a Savior, and that there is a God who created us to have a relationship with us, but we're the ones that broke that, and that we carry a cancer called sin that's in our genes, just like there are genes in you that came from your parents that you cannot do away with. They were given to you, you can't change them, you're stuck with them. That declares that there's also a spiritual genetic condition. See, all of creation declares everything God says, and he's trying to get us to see who he is. And our false premises are killing us today. The false beliefs, the false things that we keep trying to cling to are killing us. I have had three phone calls this week, three phone calls of attempted or committed suicides this week. That is hard. People are miserable because they don't consider Jesus. They know they're sinners. They know their life's a wreck. They know they're messed up. They know their genetics are messed up. They know all these things and they just can't surrender, let themselves say, I'm done. They can't lean into community. They keep separating themselves from it or demanding that the community serve them. Instead of, I give myself. Ben shared in his testimony, he real, you know, I wish I would have realized what it was to give myself to Jesus, to my family and my wife. It's so foreign in our culture to think that way because everything in our culture is trying to get us because there is an enemy who's constantly lying to us just like he did to Adam and Eve in the garden. Did God really say? Satan said to Adam and Eve. I know God's created this wonderful world for you. Everything's perfect. You can walk around naked and no one's offended. Forget wearing a mask, right? That's how they were living, right? I mean, completely free. Everything was at their disposal. And he gave them one rule. One. Don't eat that tree. Well, I wonder why. I like to try it and find out. You've never had that thought, have you? See, that's the innate sin in us. That when somebody gives us a rule, we automatically want to be the exception to the rule. That's what sin is. And you all have it and I have it. 
Someone tells you to do something and you don't feel like doing it, you find every excuse in the world why not to do it. My finger hurts. I can't wash the dishes. I, I cut myself. See that? I want to get an infection. Well, we've got rubber gloves under the sink. Yeah, but they might have a hole in them. So I'll do it later. I, let's just do it. Because I don't want to. I don't want to be told what to do. Well, are you doing something better to serve someone else that you can't serve our family? Nope, just serving me, sitting on the couch. Leave me alone. That's the definition of sin. That's what Satan came. He came and he said, you doubt God. Doubt his goodness. Did God really say? He doesn't really want what's best for you. And it's the same premise today. And what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get us to see is God, man, me do. We've got to get back to seeing God rightfully as he is, seeing mankind rightfully as the Bible says mankind is. And when I understand who God is and I understand what he says about man, then I can understand who I really am, not who the world tells me I am or my mom and dad or my grandma or the school at IU or whoever, but who does God really say that I am? And once I understand those three things, I maybe just maybe might make some right decisions. But you know the great part? Even if I understand those three things and I make wrong decisions, I get to go back to the beginning and remember the covenant we just read that God says, I forgive you. Come back to me. I'll help you. I've given you a body of believers to help you. That's the beauty of our God. If you'll read the scripture this way, it'll change how you see scripture. Stop reading the scripture to figure out what you're supposed to do. Stop. There is a God who wants to know you. That's what he wants. Might he have something for you to do? Absolutely. But first he wants to get to know you. Quit running to do so you can prove something. Just sit in his word and say, I just want to know you. Come and be with his people and we as his people should be talking to one another in a way that says, I'm coming to know God more deeply like Ben did in his testimony. I'm being changed. This is what I saw when I read the Bible this morning about God. This is what I realized about man. This is what I see in myself. Oh, and I'm so glad he's changing me. He can change you. If we were talking in our workplaces, in our classrooms, like that, we wouldn't be in the mess we're in. We've got to change. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, you've got to understand this. So he says these. You ready? Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. If that doesn't encourage you, I don't know what can. That we can draw near to God. We don't have to stay away from him because of how dirty and messed up we are. Nope. God wants us. He wants to take us and he wants to cleanse us. I had a baby shower for my daughter yesterday. Got the opportunity to stand with my father-in-law and lay hands on my son-in-law and my daughter and pray in front of our family as we had this baby shower and you know, I read this passage and I, and I just thought about the fact of Jesus coming into the world as a child, that he drew near to us, that he asked us to draw near to one another, that, that, that Miles and Micaiah, they had a wedding of only 28 people because of COVID. It was just immediate family and some friends. That's it. The bridal party and some of me, our families have never gotten together since they've been married. And it was the most beautiful, glorious picture of what God can do, especially since my daughter's married to someone of another race. And to see the racism in the room start to drop and to see people talk and communicate and love one another. 
He was beautiful. And that's the gospel. Draw near with a true heart. Not a heart that says, what can I get out of this? See, that's how we look for church today. Well, what are you looking for? How, how about you be Christ and go to church and say, is this a place I can be Christ in? Is this, are these people I could surrender my life to? What if we looked at marriage that way and instead of looking and saying, well, she's got this quality and this quality and this quality, and I like this and I like this and I like this. If we just said, I just want someone who is sold out to Jesus. I can trust God with the other parts. It doesn't mean I don't recognize the other parts. We do, right? When Adam brought Eve to him, God brought Eve to him, it wasn't like he looked at her and said, oh, that's nice. He was like, whoa, man. I know that's a bad joke, but anyway, good dad joke. I mean, he created and fashioned for that to be together. If you want, listen, if you want to be someone worth marrying, then give your life to the church, if you, want, if you want to know how to surrender to a bride, why don't you try serving a bride called the church first? If you want to learn how to submit as a, as a woman, which scripture talks about, and I mean biblical submission, I'm not like you woman, do what I tell you, because that's not how God does with us. Biblical submission is not God saying, you, you, you. God's like, here's the op. Yeah, yeah, you messed up. Like, God has a relationship, Right? If you want to learn how to biblically submit to God, then get in a church you can biblically submit to. Trust me, it'll be hard because the world will tell you that's nuts. Why would you die for those sinners and those people and those messed up people? And I know this person in that church and oh, they're bad. Oh, and I know. Just give your life. Jesus gave his life for me. That was not a good deal. He lost. <laughs> On his end, he didn't gain something great. But he did it because he's God and he loves his creation and he loves specifically humanity. Draw near with a true heart. And then he says, you better have full assurance of your faith. You can have full assurance. Don't doubt it. God has done his part and he says, you can be fully assured that I will continue to do my part, that I will love you. I want you to have confidence, the writer of Hebrews says, because the reason these Hebrews are going back is because they're doubting. They're doubting their faith. Things aren't working out the way they thought they would work out and they're trying to find a way to get assurance and confidence, so they're going back. And then he says, remember that when you come to him, you don't need to make Old Testament sacrifices. You don't need to do works. You don't try to make it up to God. You just say, here I am, an infant, like my child, grandchild that's going to be born. It doesn't come out and I go, well, you better start doing some stuff. I don't got time for this. No, I give my life. I, my daughter's going to give her life, literally risk her life to have a child. Have you ever seen childbirth? That's, that's a scary thing. I feel bad for you women. That is, wow. That is risking your life, literally. And if you don't, can't have children, try adopting a child that's already messed up in your home. That is risking your life for the mess they bring with them. And Jesus did all of that. He goes on and he says he wants to wash us with pure water. Like an infant, he wants to clean us off. He wants to love us and help us to grow to him. Then he goes on, so that's first, let us draw near. Let me ask you, do you feel like you can draw near to God? Number one, you should feel like you can't draw near to God and then by faith say, but God says I can, so I will. That's the proper response. That's the proper response of the prodigal son in the New Testament. 
when he had offended his father. He goes on and he says, let us hold on. So as we draw near, we're going to have to hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. It's not about how much you can confess. It's not about how much you can brag. It's not about your words. It's about understanding that when I confess with my mouth that the Lord Jesus is Lord, he is Yahweh who saves, who is the Messiah. When I do that, I am giving the confession, I'm clinging to him, and I am saying, I want you above anything else. And he tells us, you can always do that because you can be confident that I am faithful to the promises that I make. I said this last week, I'll say it again. God's people, the Israelites, have rejected him for the majority since 2,000 years ago as being their Messiah. And you want to know how God is so faithful to his covenants? Where are the Israelites living right now? Israel. They were brought back there in 1948. 1,948, well, a little less than that, but about 1,800 years, they didn't live in the promised land anymore. They were scattered. And God, 1,800 plus years later, says... I'll give you back your land because I just want to declare how faithful I am, even though you still don't believe in me. That should hit you a little bit of how faithful he is to his part of the covenant, even when we don't respond. And then he says, hold on, and then he says, let us be concerned. He says, if you're drawing near to me, if you're holding on to me, then your natural response is going to be to stop thinking about yourself. That is the natural response. If you draw near to me, then I'm going to have you start thinking like I think. I'm going to have you start doing what I did. And if you do that, you know what's going to happen? You're going to draw near to people because that's what I did, Jesus says. He says, let us be concerned about one another in order to promote what? Love and good works. Love by God's definition, which Ben talked about in his testimony, and good works as God defines good works. You see, we have got love and good works so messed up in our culture. The Bible says, spare the rod and spoil the child, that discipline is a good thing. And we have a debate today that like if you spank your child, that you're like the evilest person in the world. Have you read the Old Testament? God didn't just spank his children. He had a law that stoned them for rebellion. I hate to tell you this, but that's our God. Now, was it like I got mad at my kid one day and I threw him outside and I just grabbed a bunch of rocks and started hitting him? No. That's called evil anger and now you're going to be judged. And the community is going to come after you because you didn't take them through the right process to challenge their rebellion. But like I've said over and over again, if you live in a small town, which I grew up in, you learn real fast not what, what not to do from the dumb kids. You know what I'm saying? That, 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 you know, Bob, your friend Bob, and Bob keeps doing dumb things and dumb things and dumb things, and then finally it costs Bob dearly, and you're like, don't be Bob. Whatever he did, don't do it. See, the laws of the Old Testament were to show us that our life is not our own. We owe it to someone else, first to God and then to others. And man, is that offensive. You want to know why it's offensive? Because there's an enemy called Satan. 
and there are demons. And they made a choice to be completely selfish at some time in the past. We don't know when. And now they've been cast down to this earth and that they have limited influence. And they are constantly, all the time, every day, at every moment, trying to convince people to think like they think which is hate God, hate his judgment, hate his laws, hate who he is, and spit in his face and get what you want. That is what demons do. That is what Satan does. And we have a God that says, even if you do that, I will offer you forgiveness. He doesn't offer it to Satan and the demons. That's over. They've been condemned. They've been finally judged, and they'll be fully judged one day, the Bible says. But to every other human being, he gives the offer of forgiveness. Then he says, look, know my definition of love. Know my definition of what a good work is. And then he says, not staying away. He gets real practical. Not staying away from our worship meetings, as some habitually do. But encourage each other all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, when you see things getting worse, you're going to need to gather together more often. You're going to have to take the initiative to worship and invite people to come worship with you. Our worship meetings. This is a worship meeting. We're worshiping God. We just sang about his name. We sing about his glory. We're looking at his word and talking about how great he is and how desperate we are. That's all worship. All of it. Oh, and by the way, when you go to work maybe later today or Monday, or what, that's worship too. God said work six days and rest one. And if you do that, praise the Lord, you're worshiping. You're doing exactly what he created you to do. Praise the Lord. Everything in our life is supposed to be worship. And every time we stay away from something that God says is good for us to do, every time we stay away from him, stay away from others, we start drawing towards ourselves. you will not find encouragement, I promise you. You will find discouragement. You will find the demonic. You will find the oppressed. You will find a mess. And I might just get a phone call, unfortunately, about your life and a stupid decision that you made that has racked your family and racked your community because you couldn't consider and find what he says we should find in Christ. So let me ask you, are you drawing near? Do you have, are you holding on to the hope? Are you concerned about others? Look at what Paul writes about in Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, this is what Paul writes about what we just read. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ... If there's any encouragement, if any consolation of love, we just looked at love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, we just looked at the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, Paul says, fulfill my joy, what makes me so happy, by thinking the same way, having the same love, having the same feelings, and focusing on the gospel. He says, check your love and check your feelings. Check them in with God, because if they're not focused on Jesus and the gospel, you're broken. Should we check our feelings? Absolutely. But most of the time, your feelings are lying to you. They are. You're being lied to. Do they reveal some of those lies? Absolutely. If we take the time to invite others into those feelings. Sometimes we can be happy about the wrong thing, right? We can just have joy. Have you ever laughed at someone, like you're happy about what happened to them, and they weren't very happy about what happened to them? That happened this week was working on a house on Thursday. I do some part-time construction. I went back this week and worked today. I'm working construction, and a guy had been really trying to keep his dog away from us as we were placing doors in this house. 
He had been pouring all day. It's muddy. Well, he had to take his dog out. He takes his dog out. And as he's got the dog out, he's dressed in nice clothes. And this dog just jumps up on him. And I mean, it's just paw print city, man. And we, we just start laughing. And he is just, you could tell, he is angry. He's cursing. He's like, he doesn't beat his dog, but he's just like, you don't. He is so mad because why? Because we have been keeping him from caring for his dog properly all day. Because we're in the way and he's got chairs set up so his dog can't get to us. He finally takes his dog out. His dog is just so excited to finally be out, right? I'm not pinned up anymore. Woohoo! And in that moment, I thought, man, I shouldn't be laughing. Shouldn't have been laughing. I apologize. Sorry. That's my bad. He's like, nah, it's fine. Because I probably will laugh too. I'm like, yeah, but that doesn't make it right. See, so we can, we can have a feeling and think, ha, ha, and it's not appropriate. And we may need to apologize. He goes on, he says, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. But in humility, consider others more important than yourself. That is not our culture at all. Then he goes on and he says, everyone should, not, should look out not only for his own interests, but, but for the interests of others and make your attitude that of Christ Jesus. Man, how do we do that? How do I get the attitude of Jesus? Because I know I don't have it. Can I just tell you, there are some things our church is committed to that I found out this week. I went to our state, conviction, state convention meeting on Monday this week for the churches we partner with, about 450 churches in Indiana. And I was sitting, Mark went with me, he was gracious enough to come and see what we do and give some of his time, and so we got to hang out, and as we were sitting in this meeting, they were talking about the new president we were electing, he's a great guy, his name's Josh, great pastor, loved the guy to death, kids walk with Jesus, great thing. Anyway, they were talking about the fact that he has given his church to give 1% more to missions, and that he averages per capita, which means per head, typically that is either per adult member or per adult attender, $140 per adult head in his church goes to mission. And, and I'm thinking about this, and they're, and they're, they're kind of talking about, isn't it so great how his church considers others? And there's a part of me, I just scratched my head and I said, I wonder what our per capita giving is, because we don't even keep track of it. And the reason we don't is because you need per capita numbers so you can get loans. When you go to a bank, a bank wants to know how much you have per capita so they know if they can loan you the money. How much do each adult give so we can decide? Well, we don't loan money. We've never had a loan, so it's not a number we really track. We just want people to be faithful to giving. We want to teach you how to give to God, give to missions, give your whole life. So I texted Jason, and I said, hey, what's our per capita giving? He's like, I don't know. He goes, here's the equation. That is so Jason. He sends me an equation back, right? I'm like, dude, I don't have the numbers in front of me. He's like, oh, okay. And so he does the equation in two seconds. I'm like, well, couldn't you have done that before? Like, sends me the equation, and I just start laughing, and I look over at Mark. I'm like, look at this. Our church gives $402 per every human being, infant, child, adult, in our church. I was blown away. This year, because of what we gave from the sale of the property, it'll be a th- over $1,000 per head that we've given to missions. Most churches don't even have people give $1,000 per adult attender to the offering. 
I tell you that because we are a church that is constantly saying, how are we concerned about the things that God is concerned about? And how do we commit our life to them, even if i got to go work construction one day a week? If Jason works another job, Brian works another job, if we're... We want to give as much as we can to Christ. Do we get it right all the time? No, we're a mess. But we want to try. We want to... I am just so grateful when I read this. I'm like, man, I'm so grateful for you all. I'm grateful that we have a church that people are not looking out for their own interests. They're trying to look out for one another. They're trying to encourage one another. And I see this attitude. Look at this. He says... Have the same attitude of Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Welcome to modern Christianity. This is what Jesus has for you. This is the promise you can declare. This is what he wants. This is what he wants. This is constantly telling us how we can use Jesus and use the church, and even churches advertise themselves as, hey, come, this is how you can use us. Last time I checked, that's like prostitution. I know that's blunt, not trying to be too offensive. Whatever just happened to, hey, we're faithful people, you can come be faithful with us. When we're not faithful, we we try to admit we're not faithful, ask forgiveness and move forward. That's just so boring. And it's also so challenging, which is why Paul writes it. And then he says, look at this. Jesus emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. How do you like to empty yourself? When people ask you to empty yourself to serve, do you go, oh, I'm just worshiping right now. This is so awesome. He goes on and he says, and when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I haven't been that obedient yet. I hope I can be. And then he says, for this reason, God highly exalted Jesus and gave him the name that is above every other name. It means Yahweh who saves us. That's his name. And it says, so at the time of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's a relationship. You see that? It's a son who says, I don't need my rights. I don't need to get what I can get. I just want everyone to know how great being a part of this God family is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I just want everybody to experience what it's like to be loved like this. What it's like to empty yourself and see God resurrect you and see life. I want everybody to know that God. I want everybody to know my family and know my father. He goes on, he says, now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy, he goes on to say, to you soon, so that I may be encouraged when I hear news about you. Look at what Paul writes. For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely, uh, genuinely care about your interest. That had to be heartbreaking for Paul to write. He's been doing ministry all this time. He's surrendered his life to Jesus. He's been beaten, shipwrecked, stoned, like with real stones. He's been through all all these things that he's been through. And he looks around and he says, I hope I can send Timothy. I hope I can send him, but I just don't have that many people who are faithful to send to you. See, God is looking for faithful people like you and I to send to people that will just live simple lives and go and serve. And when they're asked to serve, they serve. 
Paul says, I don't know if, if I can find someone like that. And then he goes on and he says, but you know his proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. He's given up everything to serve you guys. He's, I have this special relationship that I wish everybody could experience. Hebrews 10, 26 is the hardest passage in Scripture. But it's not hard if you understand the context. What has the writer been doing for ten and a half chapters? Trying to tell people to find their confidence in Jesus. Trying to get people to surrender to Jesus. See, here's what the enemy wants to do. The enemy wants to get you to this passage, and he wants to so discourage you that you don't draw near, you don't find hope, and that you withdraw from the body. That's the enemy's goal. The author of Hebrews, this is not his goal. The author of Hebrews is honestly and truthfully giving a warning so that those who are finding their hope, they are drawing near, they are doing these things, are confident in their God. We know that because of the second part he talks about in 10. Here's what it says. For if we deliberately sin after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Okay, quick, quick survey. How many of you have ever deliberately sinned? Like you knew Jesus did not want you to do it and you said, forget you, I'm doing it. Okay, well, we're all going to hell. Have a nice Sunday. It was a good run. We tried. Do you think that's what the author is writing here? You just all rose your, your hands. Like, yeah, I deliberately sinned. That's not what the author of Hebrews is trying to say. He's been trying to encourage them and give them hope. The idea here that the author is wrestling with is in the Old Testament, they had deliberate sins and unintentional sins. They had a way to repent, a way to... Do you know how they dealt with deliberate sin in the Old Testament? Death. Do you know how God dealt with deliberate sin in the New Testament? The death of Jesus. And that's why he goes on to get ready to say what he's getting ready to say. Because he's saying, I want you to understand that it's not like the sin you do. It's, it's, this, it's an attitude. It's a presence. It's an idea that I'm going to cling to my sin because it's the thing that gives me hope. I'm not going to give it up. I'm not going to be disgusted by my sin and struggle with my sin. I'm going to embrace it as it's exactly what Jesus wants for me. And I'm going to actually change the Bible, change scripture, and deliberately tell God, you're wrong, I'm right, I will do what I want, and you still owe me heaven. That's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get through to these Hebrew people who think they're going to be saved by Abraham and they're going back to that. And he says, look, but if you do deliberately sin, there is a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire about to consume the adversaries. Yep. How many of you have ever felt that way after you've deliberately sinned? <laughs> oh, man, God's going to get me. Oh, God, you're, you're out for me now. I'm in trouble. I should not have done. You're, oh, oh, Lord, I'm so, I'll never do that again. Yeah, you will. Right? I promise if you get me out of this, I'll never. Yeah, you probably will. That terrifying expectation is a healthy thing because it drives us back to what? We need someone to deliberately die for us. We should have that, but we shouldn't respond wrongly to it. Right? We shouldn't withdraw ourselves. We should draw near, have hope, 
come to the body and realize I'm not on fire. I've got heaven. Praise the Lord. Someday he will purify me. He goes on to say this. If anyone disregards Moses' law and he dies without mercy, he dies without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. In other words, when you broke the law, the way they'd prove it is, okay, did, did multiple people see them break the law? In other words, he's saying, look, in the Old Testament, we could prove very easily that you're a lawbreaker, that you're a mess. Then he goes on, he says, how much worse the punishment do you think one will deserve who is trampled on the Son of God? Have you ever seen someone trample something? Have you ever seen a horse trample a snake? Guys, I have. I I worked with horses for two and a half summers, teaching kids how to ride horses. They go berserk. I mean, they scream and they're just, I mean, it is like you don't want to be near that horse. It is like obvious to everyone, this horse is insane and trampling someone. Let it calm down first. The horse doesn't go, You can tell the difference between someone who's struggling with sin and someone who's trying to trample Jesus and they want nothing to do with him. If you feel that terrifying expectation and you're crying out to God and you're crying out to his body and you're wondering if you're forgiven and you're doubting, this isn't you. The writer's not talking about you. He's talking about the crazy guy, the crazy horse. He goes on and he says this. Regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. In other words, you say, Jesus' blood is not enough for my sin. He can't forgive me. He can't do what he wants. He, he is unable that you have actually disregarded the blood of the, you never accepted the blood of the covenant. Because remember, these people were going back to the old covenant and going back to making sacrifices in the temple to try to keep peace. And he says, if you truly understood the covenant of Jesus, you would never go back to that. You would never go back to trying to earn your salvation. When you sin deliberately and you're terrified and you think about the punishment, do do you like then try to earn your salvation? Do, do, Do you like change over the covenant and be like, yeah, Jesus is supposed to forgive me, but I don't think he can forgive me. So now I'm just going to work all the time to try to get forgiveness. I'm actually going to go back and do all the Old Testament laws, almost 700 of them. I'm really going to try hard. Have you ever thought that? Probably not. You want to know why? Because if you know Jesus, you can draw near to him. You can find hope. You can confess. You can be around the body. We can walk with you and struggle with you as long as it takes for you to be delivered from this mess. You see, it's so easy for Satan to take a passage like this and beat people up with it, to beat you up with it, so that you don't want God anymore. You don't believe he's loving. You don't believe he's good. You think, did God really say he could forgive me just before this, that his covenant's eternal, that he keeps his promises, that I can hope in him? Did God really say that? Oh, no, no, no. Satan says, oh, you're done. The writer of Hebrews is not saying that. What the writer of Hebrews is doing is giving a warning Because he cares about these people. He's warning them. He's saying, do you really know Jesus? Have you really surrendered to him? And if you have, you can trust him. It's a beautiful picture. He goes on to say, insulted the spirit of grace. When we sin, we insult the spirit of grace. The question is, what do you do with it? Do you come back to God and ask him for his grace and admit that you're a sinner? And in desperate need of him? 
As if you do, welcome to Christianity. <laughs> welcome to the Bible. Welcome to our God who had to send his son to deal with us and deal with our sin. Have you come to the place and said, well, I don't believe that there's grace. It's all about works. It's all about being a good person. It's all about that. Well, then you don't know the gospel. And the writer of Hebrews is like, you need to know the true gospel. He goes on. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this way. He says, Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things, not in words taught by human wisdom, but by those taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. In other words, if you don't know Jesus, then you're going to misinterpret scripture because you're going to twist it to what you want it to be. And you have to have spiritual people around you, people who are filled with the Holy Spirit who know Jesus to help us understand spiritual things. The Bible is written by who? Spirit-filled people who wrote down spiritual things so you could know spiritual things, praise the Lord. He goes on and he says, but the unbeliever does not welcome what comes from God's Spirit. If you just read the passage I read in Hebrews and you're feeling that weight and you find yourself saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you forgive me. Thank you that you haven't given up on me. Thank you that I can, even though I doubt, I can trust in you that you are welcoming what comes from God's Spirit. He goes on, he says, it's foolish to him because he's not able to understand it since it's evaluated spiritually. Let me ask you, do you consider Jesus? Do you evaluate spiritually? Do you get in the Bible so that you can better know God to evaluate things spiritually? Because that's the only way I find that I can evaluate things well is to be in his word. Otherwise, I mess everything up. And I got to be around other people who are in, in his word and ask them questions about, hey, I'm trying to make an evaluation. Can you help me here? What do you think? Called a pastor this week because I thought, man, he's going through a rough time. That's got to be hard. Called him and I said, how can I pray for you? And he said, well, actually, let me ask, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? What, what you, we ended up having a conversation just encouraging one another and spiritually evaluating our lives. I hadn't talked to him in three, well, two years. That's what it looks like. The author of Hebrews goes on and says, for we know, look at this, he just said this hard message, and then he says, for we know. Do you know? For we know the one who has said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jonathan Edwards, who kind of led the, first, or the second great awakening, here in this country, Jonathan Edwards gave a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It comes from, the title of the sermon came from this passage. When you read that sermon, you probably think he preached like I did, like I do, kind of loud and excited. Jonathan Edwards did not preach that way. Jonathan Edwards preached off scraps of paper and he wrote it down as a manuscript and he read it. You think, I, whew, that'd be rough, right? So, and he just, Turned it over. The first time he preached Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which is possibly the, the most famous sermon other than, than Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, especially in our country, probably one of the most famous sermons ever, ever, ever written. When he preached that sermon in his church the first time, you want to know what happened? Nothing. It was like, he preached the sermon, they're like, yes, good sermon, we're going to go home and get lunch, see ya. That's literally what happened. The second time he preached the sermon, he preached it to a group of people that believed 
But they were saved because of their works. They believed that Hebrews passage. They did not believe in Jesus, but they had a thin veneer of Christianity or religion like these Hebrews he's writing to. And when he preached it the second time, would you preach a sermon a second time when it bombed the first? Man, what? That's some faith right there. Right? And preach it the same way. I'm pulling my scraps of paper. Here you go, everybody. There you are. And revival broke out. People were weeping. They were falling before God, terrified, saying, God, save us. We want your son. We repent. We want you. We, we give up. We're done. And revival broke out across all of America. It wasn't some special miracle wow thing. It was just simple faithfulness of a preacher. And God working, and I'm telling you this morning, God wants to work in you. And he wants you to know not to believe the lie, that it is terrifying, but there's someone who fell into the hands of the living God on your behalf. And you don't have to be terrified now. You can come with confidence that he did it for you. There is no religion like that on the face of the planet. Hebrews goes on and he says, Remember the earlier days. If you're feeling discouraged, remember the earlier days when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions. And at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions, knowing that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So don't throw away your confidence. Hold on. You just wrote a passage that's really telling me to throw away my confidence. I mean, I'm feeling like I should throw away my confidence because I'm so awful. And the writer of Hebrews says, don't do that. That's not what I want. I don't want you to throw away your confidence. He goes on, he says, which has great reward for you need endurance so that after you've done God's will, you may receive what was promised. He says, look, you're watching people who have turned their back on God that said they were Christians and they're really not. And you're watching their life turn out pretty well. And I am writing you to tell you that it's not going to go well for them. And when you're seeing your whole life come apart, and when you're seeing God challenge you at every level on your heart, and he is trying to get to know you and lean into you and have a relationship with you, he says you can be confident that God is with you. You can be confident that you have the Spirit. You can be confident because God is testing you. He's with you. He's, like, that is awesome. Who are the best teachers you had in school? The ones that tested you. They didn't give you a pass. They didn't make it easy. It was the ones that said, no, I'm going to teach you how to do this well, and it will pay off later. Those are the teachers, five years, you go, oh, man, I'm so grateful for them and how they prepared me. That's what God wants to do in us. He says, remember, let us remember the earlier days. It's hard, but God has been with you. When I read this passage this week, I just started thinking about all the things that God has done in my life and the patience that he's had with me, even in my sin. I started thinking about all the moments he showed up and what he did, and there's no other explanation for it than he did it. And I just got really thankful. Last night I called my mom on the way home. Spent an hour, over an hour talking to her on my way home from the shower, just thanking her and being like, Mom, thank you. Thanks for you and dad modeling to me what it looks like to do this, to lay down your life, to have your confidence in Christ, to serve a church that doesn't give back to you. My parents are 79 and 81, and this week, my mom can't walk. She has extreme pain in her knee. She has a knee surgery two weeks from now. My dad's a wreck. He's going to be in the hospital tomorrow all day getting tests, and they fed 12 people this week in their house. 
Because people just stop by their house to ask them their opinions on spiritual matters. They should be demanding, you serve us now. We've, we've done all we can. It's your turn to step up. My mom wanted to quit this week, and she said, you know, I was, I was done. I looked, at, I looked at your dad, and I said, I, can't, I just can't do anymore. Your dad looked right at me, and he said, Sue, this is where God put us, and he still has us here. We've got to. She said, you're right. I'll go start cooking stuff in the kitchen. Gosh. To have parents like that is annoying. <laughs> like, I, I need an excuse to say, no, not me. I, you know, I, my parents are like, I can't walk. My mom's got a walker. My dad's got a They got three walkers in their house. Who has three walkers in their house still feeding people? What planet are you from? Go to a home and enjoy your life. Guys, that's who Paul's writing to. He goes on, he says, for yet in a little while, the coming one will come. Jesus is coming. He will not delay. We think he's delaying. We think he's not coming fast enough. The reason Jesus isn't coming is because he's patient with you and he's patient with all those people out there and he so wants them to come to know him. That's the only reason he hasn't come back yet. He says, but my righteousness will live, my righteous will live by faith. And if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. This is prophesying about Jesus when he came. This is from Isaiah 26 and Habakkuk 2. He says, but we are not, look at what he says, we are not of those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and obtain life. He looks at them and says, again, you read draw back and you go, oh, if I draw back, maybe, I've drawn, maybe I could draw back and lose my salvation. And the writer's like, that's not you. I'm not talking about you. You're here. You're worshiping. Not applicable. Then he goes on and he says, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for and the proof of what is not seen. We'll break that down next week. But it's the reality of what we hope for. Do you hope for a God that will love you, that will forgive you, that will give you the strength to go another day, that will help you do what's hard that he says is right in Scripture when no one else is doing it? Because he says if you do, you can cling to the reality of the hope of that faith, that there is hope for you. And he says, don't look around and say, what's everybody else doing and how's it working for them? Come to my word and say, what did Jesus do? What did his people do? And how did it work for his glory? That's what the writer of Hebrews wants us to get out of chapter 10. Don't be deceived. As we wrap up, I want to leave you with this. Ephesians 1. Paul writes very clearly to us where we stand. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You're not a good person. There's no good person out there. We are all dead men walking. And he says, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too have all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by our very nature children under wrath as others were also. But God, who rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He goes on and he says, together with Christ, 
one another together with Christ. He also raised us. He's using plural words here. Raised us up and seated us in the heavens so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace, what Jesus did through faith. And it's not of yourselves. It's a free gift of God, not from works that you can earn it so that no one can boast. For we are his creation, created in the Messiah who is Yahweh who saves for good works, which Yahweh or God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles, you were unbelievers in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which they believed they were saved because of their flesh. They're both wrong. At that time, you were without the Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near, draw near by the blood of the Messiah, for he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He brought us together. What did Christ do? He said, you can draw near. Let us together draw near. Let us together hold on. Let us together be concerned about ourselves and others. Let us remember. Let us by faith live our lives in the promises of God because faith is the reality of what's hoped for and the proof of what's not seen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I know I need it. I'm selfish. I want to do what I want to do. I want the word to say what I want it to say. Instead of really truly seeing what the word really says. And so Father, this morning I pray that you would help us to see who you really are. I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that has realized that they are dead in their trespasses and sins and they want to repent. And finally settle the issue with you and say, I'm done. I surrender. I give up. Father, I pray that this morning would be the morning they do it. And then I pray that they would tell somebody about it and tell them the hope they now have and the confession they now have in you. I thank you for our brother, Ben, who has come to know this, who has practiced this, who has repented. Lord, I thank you for his love for you his willingness to admit and lean into the body for help. And Father, I pray that there might be more in Bloomington, more in our families, more in this church that would have that kind of heart. I thank you for how you're changing lives. I thank you for what you're doing. And Father, I pray that we would see how amazing the grace is that you've given us, that it's about your promise and who you are. And may we surrender fully to you. We pray all this in your name. Let us be your disciples and followers. Amen.